G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How you doing today? Good, thanks, Rowan. And how about yourself? Going well, and very much looking forward to this week's podcast, which is a fascinating topic, which we've called some basics of schema therapy. So, Dad, I must admit, I think this is maybe a little bit of a maybe underspoken about element of psychology. So, I am really looking forward to getting into it with you today. But what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, so schema therapy developed from the nineteen eighties to address a problem in cognitive behaviour therapy and many other therapies. And what schema therapy looked to do is to identify more persistent underlying personality problems where people were having difficulty that would lead them into therapy. And it was recognised that therapy approaches like cognitive behavioural therapy, if it would look to help people identify negative thoughts that were underlying their feelings or behaviour, that sometimes CBT could be a little bit superficial in looking to address, for example, negative thoughts for depression or fear-related thoughts that underlie anxiety, perceptions of danger or threat. Sometimes people had deeper kind of feelings and perspectives often that weren't so fully conscious. And this is where people often got into more persistent difficulties, so their depression would last longer. And often it was because of more complicated personality patterns under the surface and deeper, less conscious feelings under the surface. And schema therapy developed to help address these underlying personality problems and help get better progress in therapy than typically happened with something that might be seen as too superficial, like some of the earlier levels of CBT. Well, I think it is just a fascinating area of psychology because I think we've made many advances in psychology over the last few years and maybe with popular psychology, I think psychology has become a bit more of a mainstream topic in some ways. Like you see people like Tony Robbins and even, you know, marketers and entrepreneurs and these sort of people, I suppose, dabbling in psychology a little bit. And I suppose as someone who's interested in the field, this is maybe an area that doesn't get spoken about as much. Like we, I think we've cottoned on in some ways to some of the elements of CBT in terms of maybe behavioural activation and, and certain things like that. But the schemas hint at a deeper element of psychology and it's something that, that potentially is a limitation of, for example, CBT and positive psychology as well. Do you want to just speak to how CBT and positive psychology are potentially limited in a sense compared to something like schema therapy? Okay, and especially with people with longer term and more severe personality difficulties and more persistent problems with depression and anxiety, for example. But just say positive psychology, there's a lot about positive psychology that's wonderful and our podcast draws strongly on principles of positive psychology. We apply it in our practice very regularly. Many of our podcasts are on the theme, certainly. But there's something which can be a limitation of focusing on people's strengths first and foremost. So positive psychology largely developed from saying that too much of psychology focused on people's difficulties, on diagnoses like anxiety and depression, on problems that people had, and didn't focus enough on people's strengths. Now, one of the things here, though, is if you work as a psychotherapist, say in a psychiatric hospital or with people who've got quite significant levels of depression or persistent depression or anxiety problems or obsessive compulsive disorder that's gone for a long period of time, generally that's not going to be sorted very readily by just focusing on people's strengths, 
by acknowledging their persistence or courage or getting people to do gratitude exercises or things like that. Basically, where people are having the greatest difficulties when they're running up against the rocks. And there's certain things that can interfere with people being prepared to take risks. There's certain things that make it difficult for people to trust others. There are ways that it can be hard for people to find direction in their life and have a belief of following through about that. So the thing is, when you work as a therapist, you see quite a number of people who struggle to engage in a therapy process. They find it hard to be hopeful about the future. They might find it very hard to answer the initial question of, what do you hope to gain from seeing me? They might be quite confused about their difficulties. And so many people also struggle to identify their thoughts and feelings, let alone to step back and flexibly challenge them or question them. So some of the things that we look to do in CBT or in positive psychology encourage people to have more flexible way of looking at things, pick up from education of how they can see things as, well, the glass half full rather than glass half empty. Well, it's very difficult to do if someone's been abandoned from their childhood, abused through many kind of relationships, learnt not to trust other people, including their therapist. Well, a lot of therapy or counselling situations don't progress as readily as early CBT or positive psychology would suggest when people have these more underlying personality difficulties. And I think it's the kind of thing as well where obviously, particularly I think positive psychology like most people, if not all people that I've met in the positive psychology field mean very well and they're coming from you know, a great place in terms of their intentions. But there can almost be this little aspect of coming across this great information and just wanting to get it out there to help as many people as possible, but it maybe doesn't individualise things as much as say, looking at schema therapy would. Like, for example, one term that I hear quite often, whether it be in you know, positive psychology, but, but in a range of fields, is like limiting beliefs. You hear people talk about you know, limiting beliefs, a very, I suppose, Tony Robbins kind of notion. And the kind of implication from the way that a lot of people talk about it is that once you identify these limiting beliefs, it's just a matter of going, oh, you know, that's a limiting belief I have. I'll, I'll just transcend that with the click of my fingers. And it seems to me that a lot of these limiting beliefs that people speak about, they're actually quite complex and they're actually quite complicated and they actually get to oh, the heart of some of our you know, deeper and more formative experiences, potentially in childhood and things like this. And so to me, it potentially looks at it a little bit too lightly if we just sort of go, look, everyone has limiting beliefs and you know, if we can just transcend those and you know, we'll all be the better for it sort of thing. Well, it's actually like... To me, in a lot of situations, people develop limiting beliefs for quite legitimate reasons. Not legitimate in the sense that you want to condone the difficulties that they can get themselves into, but it can be quite a natural response. And so it seems to me that looking into schema therapy, it tries to get to the heart of maybe what that natural response is in particular situations, and then maybe looks to undo some of the damage that particular patterns cause without wanting to, for example, judge someone for the way that they're behaving in a particular situation. Yes, and look, I might bring up a case example that gets at that, and this might illustrate how we can underestimate the impact of underlying personality patterns. For example, if someone has the limiting belief that other people can't be trusted or it's best not to get close to other people, well, if someone has been repeatedly 
physically or even sexually abused by parents and trusted others and then criticised right through their childhood and not supported in a whole range of challenging situations, you can understand how they're going to develop the belief that others can't be trusted and just pointing that out to them that it might be a limiting belief when there are other people around them who are potentially trustworthy, that's not going to cut it at making change in itself. So what happened in this particular situation is one of the first clients I saw with very significant personality difficulties at the hospital in Geelong. And I said to this person, having very diligently read the textbook on CBT for depression, cognitive therapy for depression, and having attended a full-day workshop on this, and I explained to the person, look, we're going to meet for 16 sessions, and we're going to include things like activities that give you a sense of achievement and pleasure. We're going to use relaxation techniques to manage with arousal or anxiety. We're going to look at different ways of challenging negative thoughts, and this will take place over 16 sessions and I knew what I was going to cover in sessions one and two the assessment and then three four five right through to 16 a follow-up session well what I didn't take into account is from this person's history they'd been hospitalized at least five times they'd had suicide attempts they'd had years of therapy contact with other people that had a range of medication but this person had a horrendous history of neglect abuse and understandably was very distrusting of other people and would have been distrusting of myself, even people that she met through her local church had been quite abusive towards her. So as you can imagine, when people have had the most negative kind of experiences and it seems that when people have been traumatised or abused, they can be a little bit vulnerable to being abused again. And part of it is people can almost half expect history to repeat and not be aware how they have underlying beliefs about how they might be vulnerable to further harm or how they can't protect themselves or, or they're not entitled to stand up for themselves in situations where they might be mistreated. Now, as you can imagine, I had a very naive expectation in that particular situation. And I've known of many other situations where if people approached therapy in a certain way, and didn't allow for the impact of past trauma or repeated trauma. Now, we can understand that with war veterans, we wouldn't expect a war veteran who'd experienced all sorts of very life-threatening situations just to be able to transcend any related difficulties by identifying negative thoughts, for example, or just focusing on their strengths. The notion of schema therapy developed to help address a range of personality patterns more directly and acknowledge the kind of conditions that people might have been raised in, the kind of childhood experiences they might have had or other traumatic experiences that might have led them to develop some, well, we could call them self-limiting beliefs, but as you're suggesting, quite understandable given their background. Well, I think that's a, a very interesting example there because it gets in some ways to what I was talking about before in terms of like it seems to me in that situation you approach the client having decided your approach without meeting them obviously but without taking their complexities into account as a person and it seems to me that that's part of what schema therapy is really trying to do it's recognize that hey you know people aren't straightforward it's not just a matter of you know ticking box a and ticking box b and then all of a sudden you know away you go that's a little bit more to it than that but dad let's get into exactly what the schemas are now like if we go really broadly as a bit of an overview what are the schemas 
Okay, well, basically, a schema is defined by Jeffrey Young, who developed schema therapy, is a broad pattern of memories, thoughts, feelings, and emotions. So basically, it's not just underlying thoughts or not just feelings, but it's a pattern of all of these things going together, past memories, thoughts, feelings, and sensations that have an influence on how people see themselves and relate to other people. There are patterns that are generally developed in childhood and they might persist in adult life and become further elaborated, but they're dysfunctional in some ways. Like I mentioned before the example of mistrust. If people have a mistrust and abuse schema, they're anticipating that other people will be out to harm them in some way. If people have an abandonment schema, they'll expect, against maybe reasonable evidence, that the next person is likely to abandon them if, for example, they have an argument with their new partner. Or people can have an approval-seeking schema. So where they're looking for other people's validation and sometimes not being so in touch with their own interests or desires because they're so much trying to be a people pleaser. There are a range of different schemas that Jeff Young identified, about 18 different schemas that we'll talk about a little bit later. And they're about these broad patterns of thoughts, feelings and behaviours that get people into trouble in relation to how they experience their attachments with other people or their sense of autonomy and freedom in their life, or how much they feel free to express themselves independently to other people, how much they can feel free and spontaneous, and also how they manage with limits and self-control. These are broad areas of life related to core needs we have as human beings, and when people have had negative experiences in those kind of areas, it tends to lead to the development of particular schema, dysfunctional patterns of reacting. And so the way that I think about it, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but almost see it as, for example, whether it be narratives that we tell ourselves or particular blind spots that we might have about our own personality or particular maybe even compensations that we make for weaknesses that we have in a particular area. Like, it seems to me that some of the experiences that we have, particularly those kind of formative experiences, but some of maybe the intense emotional experiences are going to affect how we see ourselves and how we see the world as well. And like, for example, this is, you know, not necessarily, I wouldn't describe this as a schema, but I wonder if this is a way of explaining it in terms of, you know, you think about the term love, for example, it's quite a universal term. Everyone has seemingly universal definition of love. But for example, if I'm in a loving relationship and, you know, that might've gone on for many years, I'm going to have a particular definition of love. Whereas say a week later, if that relationship ends and maybe it's been circumstances that I wasn't happy about you know potentially it's going to affect my view of what love is as a concept even though I haven't necessarily changed the definition it's just almost like internally looking at that as an idea it's just going to feel slightly different and I recognize that that's not a schema but to me it almost speaks to the idea of how our experiences can almost affect the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, it's as if a negative experience can get in the way of responding in a way that we'd be most happy with. Yes, so such an important area of life, how we deal with and respond to our intimate relationships. So just the notion of being close to other people. At one level, we can think, well, what do we think of intimate relationships, being close with others? Well, on one hand, how wonderful. At another level, how threatening. 
yes, it depends on people's experiences, current experiences, long-distance experiences. And one of the ideas of schema therapy is looking at patterns in your life, patterns where things aren't going so well that Jeff Young also refers to them as life traps. And seeing how some of these patterns, some of these underlying beliefs and reactions from the past can relate to how we deal with things currently. So one example might be this idea of mistrust and abuse. Well, the person recognises that they have great difficulty getting close to other people and drawing on supportive relationships. And they're often angry or hurt or feeling mistreated. Now what happens, they see a therapist for that. And what happens then? They're feeling a little bit at threat from the therapist. What did the therapist mean by that look or saying that or having to cancel an appointment? Does that mean the therapist doesn't want to see them anymore? Or otherwise, when people are quite paranoid, if I might use that term, meaning exceedingly wary, what happens if a therapist acts a little bit friendly? Hey, wait a minute, they're a stranger, don't know them very well. They're acting a little bit friendly. Look, wait a minute, this is a little bit too good to be true. That can actually be a trigger. For a client who's somewhat paranoid. Actually, I find when I see clients who I know have a history that suggests that they're quite paranoid to come across that way, meaning exceedingly wary, then through the therapy can say some quite direct, somewhat challenging things from time to time. And then actually brings out more trust rather than less because the person thinks, oh, I can actually count on what you're saying a bit more because you're saying something challenging to me or something that sounds a bit negative to me at the moment. So maybe you're being real with me. So it's actually quite complex the way that we might relate to other people in terms of how we interpret closeness versus distance in relationships or whether we see something as an opportunity or a threat. I like that term that Jeff Young uses, like life traps, because it gets across that idea that I'm almost struggling to explain it in a way in terms of like it's you don't necessarily want to condone a pattern of behavior that leads people to have problems down the track but it's an understandable or it's an organic or you can get your head around why people would respond in a certain way and you touched on it before and I think it would even be worth just getting into a little bit more but in terms of how our core needs relate to the schemas like you mentioned about core needs not being met well, firstly, like what are core needs and how are they related to the schemas? Okay, well, actually, that's a helpful way of thinking of what the specific schemas are, the 18 schemas, by relating them to core needs, having been frustrated or not having been met well, or there having been imbalances, or there having been complications in people meeting their core needs, especially in childhood. Well, let's take one core need, having a secure attachment to others. Now, initially, this will typically be parents, and that's where it's important for children, infants and children, to grow up with a sense of safety, stability, feeling accepted, feeling loved, feeling lovable. Well, what happens if that goes wrong? What if people have been abandoned early on? And they might not know why they were given up for adoption, but there might be this sense of abandonment. Or they might have had a parent who went into hospital for a lengthy period when they were a young infant and wonder well, the parent's not around anymore, that actually can lead to an impact in terms of people's underlying memories and how they perceive situations where someone close is not there. So they might develop an abandonment schema, be very sensitive 
to their partner showing signs or signals of potentially not being around. It could even be having an argument that comes up and the person might overreact to that, fearing that they're going to lose the other person. Another one would be mistrust and abuse, the mistrust-abuse schema, and often naturally triggered or developed if the person has experienced, for example, repeated physical or sexual abuse in childhood. Then there's emotional deprivation schema, and that might be where the person's experienced neglect in infancy and childhood. That will make them more vulnerable to that schema, where the person might grow up anticipating that future partners might not meet their needs, half expecting their needs not to be met, or otherwise overreacting the other way and being overly demanding for their needs to be met in some way. So having a conflict around people being available for that nurturing and support. There can also be a defectiveness schema, and you can imagine if children have been, again, treated in an emotionally abusive way, called names, treated as though they were hopeless in different kind of ways, they might develop a defectiveness schema, meaning that in different situations, maybe in adult life, where they feel that their worth might be judged in some way or where they're on the line in some way, they might tend to view people or anticipate others as seeing them as defective and maybe giving up quite quickly as a result or maybe not trying to look for a partner or not look for a promotion or be able to practice their skills because of an overly negative view of their worth. And then there also might be social isolation, another one. And so where the person feels that they don't belong, where they feel cut off from other people in some way. And you can imagine some kind of family environments where someone felt like they were a bit of a black sheep or on the outer, where that might have developed further. What strikes me about that is, like, first of all, how difficult it could be to identify all of those things. Like, for example, most of those experiences that are formative in a schema sense, if that makes sense, like they are going to be in childhood. And it strikes me that when a child is going through something like being abused or neglected or abandoned, like no human in history is going to have the insight to recognise what's actually going on from a kind of broader perspective. Like all the kids are going to think is, you know, it's me that's the problem here. And so they're just going to internalise that in a way. And, you know, as time goes on, potentially there's more opportunities to further consolidate the internalisation, if that makes sense. And, and then you can see how these patterns can develop. But what I wonder is, do people often identify schemas within themselves? Like, is it something that is easy to pick up on or is it quite difficult to identify? Well, look, They'll vary somewhat, and as we go through other schemas, I might sort of point out some of the ones that people might be more aware of and others they might be less aware of. But it's a very good point that you're picking up. Often people will have blind spots about what schemas they have, where things tend to get out of balance in their personality, and this is where you need some kind of multimodal assessment to get at it. And so what therapists will tend to use, or one very useful thing, is a questionnaire itself. We use, in our practice, what's called the Young Schema Questionnaire, that people identify how they tend to react in various kind of situations, and their ways of seeing where there might be a little bit more of an imbalance in people's reactions. And that shows up as people having elevated scores on particular schemas on this questionnaire. And then you can explore that further in discussing it in the therapy sessions about how that might apply when the person looks back on their childhood and their current life and where they get into difficulty. That helps confirm whether a schema applies. But it also comes up in the therapist-client relationship. 
like for example a sense of abandonment that earlier client I mentioned that I talked about seeing for 16 sessions what happened after a period of time I'd actually seen her for a few years at this stage and she was actually making some quite significant progress and one day she rang me up when I'd actually asked her not to contact me between sessions unless it was an emergency. But she was put through to me, she rang the hospital, she was put through to my phone number, and then she raised something which was a little bit more trivial. And she knew that I'd asked her to only contact me if it was something quite significant. But anyway, I looked to handle that phone call quite briefly and finished up. Anyway, she rang back about five minutes later, and what she said to me is, oh, you said to me to only ring about something serious and look, I've rung you and now I'm wondering, are you going to stop seeing me now? Because you know, I rang you and I wasn't meant to. And I was feeling a little bit frustrated, but uh, I looked to contain the phone call and I said, no, I will see you next week. We have a time next week. I'll see you then. And then I think I hung up. She rang up again a number of minutes later. Oh, look, now I must have really frustrated you. I've rung up twice and you, know, you said not to contact me in between. And, and this is going on. I think there's, there's something really strange going on here. This is really kind of weird, which can happen when a schema is activated. The person can react in quite an impulsive, what seems like a nonsensical way. But the thing is, whenever people act a certain way, there's always some kind of purpose or point behind it. There's some kind of, if you like, logic or purpose behind it. And I was trying to wonder what that was. And it seemed clear to me that what this person was trying to do was, in a sense, to get me to reject her. But where she was in control, where she was initiating it, in a sense... So in a way, I think what she was fearful of was abandonment and rejection. But what she was most fearful of was if that was unanticipated or unexpected. So she was almost getting in first when she could half expect it or influence it. And then I realized what was going on and I could say to her, I am not going to allow you to force me to reject you. I'll see you next week and hung up. There was actually something of a transformation in our relationship after that. Now, as I said, I'd already seen her for a few years. She'd made progress in different ways. I think what had happened is she'd got to a certain kind of point in terms of a certain connection with me, but also certain hopes about the future in terms of succeeding to some extent with changes that she might look to make. So I think she had an abandonment schema and probably a failure schema as well. And in a sense, she was trying to act to get the axe to fall rather than get her hopes up about things progressing. And then so part of her was looking to self-sabotage this. So that's one of the indirect ways that schema can come up. But I think that, yes, she had an abandonment schema, but paradoxically, it came out that she was almost looking to force the abandonment. That is Absolutely paradoxical, as you say, and it gets to a point of psychology that I remember having a conversation with you about, and I think it's just such a a fascinating element of psychology, and it's the way that when people are going through something, they might be having an internal experience, whether it be internal conflict, people will often do something to externalise that conflict in a way or or externalise whatever internal feeling it is that they're going through. It's almost like in an attempt to seek validation, they will behave in a way that is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for some of their fears or worries. And it's almost like it's in order to 
as I say, kind of externalize or manifest the way that they're feeling in those around them. It's like, it's almost like a proactivity in a way. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about there. Yes, people tend to repeat patterns through life, especially when there are certain dysfunctional patterns established earlier on. And they do become a little bit fused with someone's ways of being and they do influence someone's sense of identity in some ways. And so, yeah, there is a tendency to, if you like, act out these conflicts. So I might mention another example of another core need. So autonomy, competence and sense of identity talking of identity, these are things that are important for us to be able to be ourselves and feel we're capable of functioning effectively in the world, the competence. Well, what happens if you get disruptions at that level? Like just say, if as a child, your parents didn't have faith that you could develop the kind of skills that you needed to manage in the world, or you weren't given the opportunity to take risks in some ways. Or you weren't given the opportunity to maybe be yourself and develop your talents in some ways. Well, that's where people might develop other kind of schema like dependence, being overly reliant on other people's opinion, vulnerability to harm, where people anticipate that bad things will happen to them. Again, that impacts on people's sense of competence in managing the world and autonomy. Enmeshment, that's when people are overly connected to others. So we can talk of codependence in adult life, but it also can be people being enmeshed with their families so they're unable to leave their families of origin very readily or take risks, if you like. They haven't been able to leave the nest, so to speak. And another schema that way can be a failure schema, anticipating failing, anticipating things will go wrong. And that will tend to be triggered in situations where people are given some kind of important challenge and they might either succeed or fail at, it might be an exam or it might be a promotion or going for an interview or it might be in some other challenging kind of situation where the person might get caught up either in negativity about that or maybe not trying so hard because they think they're going to fail anyway. So what happens around these issues like dependence, vulnerability to harm, enmeshment, failure, you see imbalances in how people act around those particular themes. Well, I think what it does, Dad, is it gets to the heart of how complex people actually are in a way. And it can seem like things don't add up in a way, like potentially sometimes you can meet someone who who can be really arrogant in a certain way. And then afterwards, you're almost left with a feeling of, you know, maybe there was a bit of insecurity at the heart of that. Like, it seems to me that people are actually so complex. But like, for example, I was listening to a, a podcast the other day and it was talking about Dostoevsky the author and was talking about how good of a writer he is and the way that you know most characters in literature you know they're kind of either good or bad and you know you might have a you know evil villain you might have a, a good protagonist whereas in Dostoevsky's novels the characters are so complicated like it gets to the heart of this complexity and what it seems to me is that looking at the schemas and even looking at ourselves in the context of the schemas it really does get to that I suppose point you know just people aren't straightforward and so often you know there can be almost a a couple of different layers of interaction in terms of there's what's going on on the surface and there's also kind of what's going on underneath and motivating that and this seems to get to what that is. 
Yes, and as you say, people are complex and we're all going to have our shadow side, as Jung described it, our shadow side, aspects of ourselves that we aren't fully aware of or it might be the flip side of something like on the surface we might be very friendly or engaging in a particular situation but other situations might be quite mean to other people close to us and not really acknowledging that in some ways. So that might be more if we're tired or frustrated or stressed in different kind of ways but the thing is it helps to acknowledge that all of us are going to have some kind of imbalances in our personality or some kind of situations where we're likely to react in ways that are a bit exaggerated or extreme or not so adaptive and one of the things about life and growing and developing through life is being more aware of our blind spots so to speak and looking to manage them better but when we talk about schema and I should mention that these can be to a greater or lesser degree and it's only when these patterns get to a certain level of disruption that we would really call it a schema and look to address it in schema therapy or in psychotherapy generally otherwise it might be a more minor pattern or some habit that we can address a little bit more readily once it's pointed out to us but the thing with different kind of schemas as we were talking about it earlier on is these take quite a challenge to address and repeated effort and discipline to look to challenge them because they're a little bit more entrenched patterns so if we look at another set of schemas around another core need the need to express valid needs and emotions so our freedom to express our needs the freedom to express our emotions rather than being if you like inhibited and getting caught up in shame or being constricted in how we express ourselves and there are a few core schemas around that one is called subjugation where we tend to submit to other people not follow through with our needs so much Another example of that is self-sacrifice, another schema of being very giving to other people but not really pursuing one's own interests so assertively or actively. So there's an imbalance in what we give to what we look to receive. Another one would be approval-seeking. That's another schema related to difficulty expressing ourselves more freely because the focus is a little bit more on how other people are responding to us, whether they're approving or disapproving, rather than being more spontaneously ourselves. So as we can imagine, we're more likely to develop those kind of schema if we grow up in family environments where we weren't accepted all our range of emotions if we were angry or upset or frustrated or if we looked for support or nurturing, if that was seen as maybe being too demanding or if you know, parents are too distracted or not so available, that would be other kind of examples. So yes, those schemas, subjugation, self-sacrifice and approval seeking hang together around that acceptance of one's needs and right to express them. Well, let's even get into the next set of schemas, Dad, because we, are, we better get through them. We've got a little bit to get through still. So I believe spontaneity and play is the next core need that leads to a set of schemas. So what are those schemas? Again, that's expressing ourselves in life, isn't it? Being able to be playful, spontaneous, be ourselves. Well, if that's disrupted, for example, if we grew up in a very constricted environment, that might interfere with that. And then we're more likely to develop schema like a negativity and pessimism schema. And so always looking for things not to go so well or otherwise being emotionally inhibited, emotional inhibition schema, 
Or also a common one we've talked about also with perfectionism, unrelenting standards. That interferes with being more spontaneous because we feel we're on the line, our worth is going to be gauged by what we're doing. And another one is punitiveness. And that's potentially in relation to ourselves, expecting ourselves to be punished if things go wrong, but it can also apply to others, expecting others to be punished if something goes wrong, maybe rather than being a little bit more accepting that people can have their foibles. And realistic limits and self-control is the last core need that we're looking at. What schemas come out of realistic limits and self-control? Okay, one of them is an entitlement schema. We had an earlier podcast about narcissistic tendencies. And part of narcissism is a sense of entitlement. So an imbalance of one's own interests and looking after those rather than considering other people's. And that's more likely to happen in situations where, for example, people were indulged. They didn't have appropriate limits set on them. Or otherwise where people might have been deprived and so they've kind of overcompensated and had an excessive emphasis on meeting their needs relative to other people. And the other one is insufficient self-control. So that would be something that comes up with people with anger problems, but also many people would have heard the term of borderline personality disorder where people have difficulty regulating emotions and impulsive behaviour. So with schema therapy, rather than maybe using labels or categories like, say, borderline personality disorder, schema therapy looks at the kind of characteristics, the dimensions, if you like, where people can get into trouble, and one of those would be insufficient self-control when people have what would traditionally be described as borderline patterns of behaviour. Well, I suppose there's a couple of things that come to mind for me there, Dad, and I suppose, you know, the first one is, gee, parenting seems pretty hard in terms of, you know, bringing up a child and almost contending with all this sort of stuff. Like, it'd be quite difficult on one hand, but then I suppose the other hand, it almost takes a little bit of the pressure off in some ways because, like, when you were describing that there, like, notwithstanding what you said before, in terms of we look at schemas once they get to a particular threshold and we, we certainly don't want to trivialise the issues that come with maybe those personality patterns, once they do reach a certain threshold. But at the same time, as you were describing that there, I think everyone to some degree has even minor patterns that relate to what you were talking about. It may not necessarily be a, a fully-fledged schema, for lack of a better term, but at the same time, like I, I think this is one of those things, you know, like just about everything in psychology, like it is on a bit of a spectrum. And so it seems to me that, yeah, the, the issues that can come from schemas are one thing, but it's not as if there's anyone who's impervious from dealing with this sort of stuff. Like even you're talking about, say, entitlement from being indulged. Like one of the things that struck me there is that, you know, if you have all of your needs met in the context of talking about core needs, like, well, potentially you indulge to the point of having an entitlement schema. Like, well, how hard is it to almost go the right way about it in terms of satisfying all of someone's needs in, a, in the correct way, for lack of a better term? Yes, and certainly that's something I find in my own life and many friends and you talk with people and clients as well. People take parenting responsibilities very seriously overall. It's such an important role in life. And there are challenges that go with that. And people look to find the best balance that they can. 
But I think there are a couple of things with this. And first I'll say a background thing that I always found helpful, the idea of parenting. And that is the notion, just starting off accepting that as a parent, there are going to be ways in which you're going to fail. Might as well start off accepting that. That doesn't mean giving into a failure schema and expecting that will happen so you just sort of give up and don't make any effort. It's recognising you're not going to be perfect. Things aren't always going to go right. But you can look at what we call mended failures. So there's a paediatrician called Winnicott who said that for children growing up, the most important thing was that if there was some frustration of a need, like they were crying for 10 minutes and a parent didn't come to them or they were hungry or tired and they weren't comforted or nurtured at the time, the thing is, if the parent then responds, in a sense, soon enough, it might be after a disruption. The parent might have been asleep or tired or distracted or they might have had to deal with some crisis in the meantime. The infants, the child's needs weren't met. But if then the parent looks to mend the failure to make up for that, then generally children are actually going to grow up more resilient because their core needs aren't met perfectly. If they were met perfectly all the time, then children wouldn't learn how to manage and fend for themselves. They'd have what you'd call a low frustration tolerance and they'd probably develop that insufficient self-control schema, if you like. So there's something about having to deal with some level of occasional hardship or challenge that can be good. But that said, when you look at the core needs acknowledged by schema therapy, that gives a clue for parents. First of all, Look to provide that secure attachment, like a home environment that's stable, where your children are loved and accepted and where it's relatively safe. Allow your children a degree of autonomy to grow. Reflect back to them their competence and things that you notice about them, their sense of identity. That's where the character strengths are good in positive psychology, reflecting back the good that you see. Allow your children to express their needs and emotions in different kind of ways rather than unduly clamping down or being too restrictive around that, like encouraging children to be able to allow for being vulnerable and express feelings in certain kind of ways, but also allowing room for play and spontaneity, but also realistic limits and self-control that children aren't just indulged, that also that there's reasonably clear and predictable limits in the family. Now, they're the broad areas... Parents generally do look to address those kind of areas and if there's something that seems out of balance, especially if parents are working together, that makes a real difference, that really helps, then maybe adjust the balance in a slightly different direction or maybe make up for some of those mended failures if they seem apparent. Well, absolutely. And, you know, not being a parent, I suppose you hear about maybe different fashions that come in and out of parenting in some ways. Maybe it speaks to the maybe the inexact science of parenting. I remember a few years ago, I believe it was called ferberizing, where you basically just leave kids to cry. Like, you know, you look at this sort of stuff and you think maybe there's a balance to be had with attachment and teaching them resilience, all that sort of stuff. But dad, what I wonder is how do people often respond when they identify a schema within themselves? Because like, it strikes me that looking at some of this sort of stuff, for example, you know, I'm, I'm 29 years old. Like, If I was to identify schemas, there would also be the recognition that potentially that's been you know, 20 plus years of a pattern of thinking or a behaviour that's kind of been consolidated. So it can be a little bit daunting to look to address something that's so, 
I suppose, deep within our personality like that. So how do people usually respond when they identify a schema? Well, I suppose there are a couple of different things here. One is how much people are aware of that on their own and how much then people might learn more about it in therapy. In the first instance, maybe some patterns which have imbalances to them, maybe some dysfunctional patterns are more obvious to the person beforehand than others. Like people will probably generally have an idea if they're quite dependent or if they think they're defective although they might not realise how out of balance those thoughts might be, or people will often have an idea if they're quite impulsive. Maybe if they're approval-seeking, sometimes people will recognise that, sometimes people won't recognise the extent to which they're looking for that external validation. But those things are more likely to be related to the person's identity if they know they're somewhat impulsive or dependent or something like that. But people might not be so aware if they have an entitlement schema. They might just think that they are somewhat special and they do have the right to go for everything that they want and maybe ignore other people's rights to a degree. Maybe people aren't so aware of their level of enmeshment or codependence at times. Maybe people aren't aware of the extent to which they tend to be punitive towards themselves and other people are quite harsh. Now, to some extent, people are going to learn from their relationships and hopefully people get some feedback through also their group interactions as children and adolescents growing up. Hopefully that helps knock off a few rough edges, bit of feedback from peers and teachers and others hopefully would be helpful. But even then, most of us are going to have some at least mild blind spots, but they'll tend to be even more obvious if people do have, for example, persistent depression through much of their early adulthood and where the person recognises that there are repeated patterns of struggling in different roles, in relationships, in work, in taking risks, in dealing with painful emotions. It's when people notice those kind of patterns persisting, that's where often people are helped by seeing a therapist. And if the therapist is aware of ways of identifying these kind of patterns... And so that's where I think it's important not just to look at encouragement and strengths that positive psychology looks at. That's all very well. But if people have the more severe, longer-term difficulties, at least, say, 20% of people with depression are going to tend to have the more persistent, ongoing depression, that's when people are more likely to have these kind of personality difficulties. It helps to see a therapist who will tend to look for that and tend to pick it up. And so that's where using methods, including reviewing the person's history where there have been difficulties, including questionnaires like the Young Schema questionnaire, including reflecting on the therapist-client relationship. And the therapist uses a couple of different strategies that are very important in schema therapy. One is empathic confrontation. And that can include talking about the schemas themselves because well, they are dysfunctional by definition and so they can be hard to acknowledge. And people tend to try and, if you like, repeat or hold on to behaviours they've had for a long time. It can be hard to change long-term patterns of behaviour. So it takes a degree of confrontation, but also what's called limited reparenting. And that's where what the therapist looks to do is to offer the kind of encouragement and affirmation, but also limit-setting around the areas where people have had difficulty and that helps the person hone in more 
on a few areas of difficulty? Because often if people have one schema, they might have several schemas. It might be quite mild. And so maybe the person will benefit more quickly and directly from having more awareness, from psychoeducation about it, from looking at some ways of changing patterns initially. Sometimes it's easier to address than others. And the more insight people have to their pattern, and the more prepared the person is to fight it rather than defend it, recognise that this is self-defeating in some way. Watch out for a tendency just to justify it or perpetuate it in different ways. If the person's ready to tackle it and can recognise how it's limited their happiness, their sense of satisfaction or achievement in life in different ways, when the person recognises the downside of the schemas, they're more likely to be able to address them more directly. Well, I think that element of recognising the self-defeating aspect of a schema, like what strikes me about that is that that could be quite difficult in a way. And this could be potentially so unfair to say. So I don't know either of the dudes. I'm not a psychologist. So, you know, we'll use this maybe as a, a bit of an example. But, you know, I look at, for example, Nick Kyrgios and Bernard Tomic and, you know, I heard an interview with Nick Kyrgios this week. He's playing at the US Open at the moment. And it was the first time I've ever heard him speak where I thought, gee, the penny's dropped with this guy. Like, he's speaking more mature than I've ever heard him before. And he was talking about, the, you know, the way he's, he's on tour for so many months of the year and there's, you know, his team with him. And so there's people relying on him. It was kind of the first time that he was speaking, not in the context of himself and, you know, dealing with his potential and all this sort of stuff, it was actually like, hold on, I've really got to sort of put the foot down and, you know, go about realising my potential. But what really struck me about that is, you know, and maybe looking at someone like, for example, Bernard Tomic, like those two people in many ways, you know, they're individuals, they've got their own, you know, experiences and that sort of stuff. But in some ways they were both incentivized not to see how good they could get. They were both told, you know, throughout their childhood, you guys are the best, you're just going to be so good. And so... In some way, like, you know, this is completely external, me projecting on them 100%, but I could see how they would both go, do you know what, I would rather go through a career at 95% or maybe even 80% and then get to the end of the career and go, you know what, yeah, maybe I didn't achieve my potential, but if I'd really tried, then I could have. Like, it, it seems to me that, you know, Nick Kyrgios, you know, maybe with how he's speaking at the moment, this could be very much a moment in time podcast where in three months he's, you know, back to his old ways. But at the same time, like, it seems to me that he's almost made the decision to transcend some of, I don't want to call them schemas, but maybe some of those patterns of thinking that existed. And, like, that, that would be so hard to do because, A, it involves all of the hard work involved in becoming a, a brilliant tennis player. But as I say, on an identity level, on a personality level, how much easier would it be to almost stay as the person who could have done it all? You know, you, you don't even necessarily need to do it all if everyone's telling you that you could have. You know, people are treating you like a, a superstar as if you've reached your potential. And so it's almost like, well, what's the point of going through all of that hard work, potential rejection? It would be a lot easier to almost just go about it, you know, in a, in a slightly defiant way in, in some ways. And again, like I don't want to, you know, project onto, I'm not a psychologist, I don't want to psychoanalyze these blokes, but at the same time, like it, it strikes me that, you know, 
people in their position would have been incentivized not to get to the bottom of some of this sort of stuff. And so that element of if you can recognize some of the self-defeating aspects, recognize where it is causing you a bit of pain or harm or distress or discomfort or frustration, well, it's one thing to realize that. It's then another thing to, I suppose, make the choice to, to take it on. Yes, and a couple of things there. I think that there's some cultural things as well with sporting stars or people in prominent positions. But let's say sporting stars. I think that there is a risk that in people's private life, especially in the past, it was almost encouraged for people to be able to have a degree of entitlement. For example, I think that is something that's come up with the Me Too movement. A number of people, a number of men, especially in positions of power, have sometimes abused that position of power for acting in a sexually harassing way. That would reflect an entitlement schema, which I suspect might have been subtly reinforced for sporting stars or rock musicians or maybe politicians or people in power in other ways. Another thing is maybe insufficient self-control. And I think sometimes you see that with, well, certain sporting stars who act with a greater level of frustration that's visible on court compared to others who've managed that very well, like Roger Federer or Nadal, who have a great level of control, if you like, over their emotions, even in the greatest intensity of matches so there might be something of, of that that comes up as well if people are indulged not developing so much self-control but when we talk about how people deal with a schema it is worth looking at different characteristic patterns and Jeff Young described three characteristic patterns of people dealing with the schema like say a failure schema he talked about surrender avoidance and overcompensation. Just say someone anticipated that they well might fail. Well, a way of surrendering to that schema is to think, oh, I'm going to fail, this isn't going to work, the person might still be going in a sporting competition or they might be trying to do an exam, but they're not really trying that hard, they're just expecting that things won't go so well, they're expecting to fail, so the chances are they'll more than likely fail. They're surrendering to the schema. They're giving in to that kind of influence. Or they might avoid the schema or situations that might trigger it. Oh, I'm not even going to go for that exam in the first place. I'm not even going to go in a sporting competition. I'm not going to try and identify my best skills and strengths and then apply them because that would be putting myself on the line. No, I'll steer clear of those kind of challenges. That would be avoidance. Or there can be overcompensation. The person puts so much effort into succeeding to overcompensate for this fear of failure that they're just wearing themselves out, they're getting burnt out the whole time. And that can apply to any other schema, like a mistrust schema. The person gives in to their negative thoughts that this next person, even though they've acted helpful towards them, that that advisor or support or neighbour or new friend, potential friend, they'll assume that they're just out to get them. Or avoidance, well, maybe not look to enter a relationship at all because, well, you can't trust someone else, they're going to betray you. Or overcompensation, a number of people who have strong paranoid tendencies at times can be overly trusting of others, overly naively trusting, and then really reacting strongly if they feel betrayed in some way. So there are some complex ways that people deal with schema, but it relates to fight, 
flight and freeze responses to threat or danger, these evolutionary mechanisms. If we just surrender, just give in to a schema, then we're just freezing. We're just going along with it, our feelings of failure or abandonment or something like that. Avoidance is like flight. Oh, I'm not going to put myself on the line. I'm not going to face the risk of being in an intimate relationship. Or overcompensation, that's fight. I'm going to fight the schema. All right, rather than being self-sacrificing, no, I'm going to assert myself to the nth degree. But it might be a really abrasive way of putting people off from being overly forcefully assertive when it's really the person struggling to put their needs forward. So it really helps to be aware that there are those three different common patterns that people can respond to a schema because that helps understand the range of different ways that people can respond. And ultimately, we're looking for people to develop more healthy adult ways of dealing with these schema by taking on challenges bit by bit and looking to change personality patterns bit by bit. Well, I suppose that highlights just the degree to which, for example, you can have one underlying schema. Like what strikes me from that is you can have one underlying motivation which can manifest itself in so many different behaviours none of which are kind of straightforward, if that makes sense. And so I suppose that gets to the complexity of some of the way that people behave. Yes, and that's one of the strengths of schema therapy. As Jeff Young said, these particular schema, people might share the schema, but have a very different way of responding to it. And that's what helps to think in terms of schema rather than personality disorders. If we think of, for example, a narcissistic personality disorder or someone with an avoidant personality disorder, rather than the schemas along the lines of potentially self-sacrifice or entitlement or these other patterns, having the same label for personality difficulties disguises the wide range of ways that people can respond to it. So that's where schema therapy is, if you like, a more dimensional kind of assessment. It's saying there are these 18 different personality characteristics and people are going to be maybe more or less on that kind of dimension. But when they're more on these dimensions, it's generally a problem because they're dysfunctional. But it helps to differentiate the strength of the schema and recognise how it's impacted on the person and differentiate that from the way that people respond to the schema. That helps the person stand back from the schema or the issues that they're facing and challenge them and fight them, if you like, to stand up to them more strongly and not over-identify with the schema as being themselves or their personality. The schemas are more like life traps and blind spots and patterns of behaviour that have got in the way of them being more fully themselves. Well, I think it is a, you know, it's a much more empathetic way of certainly looking at it. Like, you know, even the term personality disorder, like actually, you know, the way you describe that there, yeah, like I actually realised that, I remember first kind of realising that that was a recognised and quite prominent term and almost being a little bit taken aback. You think personality disorder, like imagine if, imagine if you were labelled as having a, a personality disorder, like the word disorder, it's not unorder you know you think disinterested as opposed to uninterested like it's a, I think dis means away you know it's the implication is that someone can't be ordered in the future which is just silly if you look at it well that was certainly one of the problems with the terminology especially in the 1980s when people would talk about borderline personality disorder and look this is a horrible thing but sometimes 
a person, if they were behaving in a very disruptive way, like they were repeatedly looking to abscond from the ward and self-harm. So it was very difficult for staff to help manage with that person's difficulties, admittedly, but sometimes you'd hear the expression, they're a PD, meaning the person is a personality disorder. Now, that's horrendous, and hopefully that would never happen these days. And I think people are more enlightened about these things. But when the term personality disorder was used, it was meant to describe a pattern of behaviour or symptoms that people might be suffering from. There's the human being with their strengths and personality and character and history. And then there's the pattern of difficulties in their behaviour that was called the personality disorder. If it became fused and the person thought of themselves as a personality disorder or were treated as though they were a big bunch of problem symptoms or something like that, as you can imagine, that's pejorative, it's judgmental, it's part of the reason why the terminology needed to change. So I think there was some utility in identifying different kinds of personality disorders like avoidant personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. But when I talk with clients, if I use terms that relate to that, I might say avoidant tendencies or narcissistic tendencies we could talk about trays but when it boils down to it it's very important to separate the person from the difficulties and also then their response to the difficulties and that gives people more choice and encouragement in how they can deal with it i think you, you mentioned something off air which you know like i was asking the question trying to get my head around you know schemas and stuff you know talking about for example identity like in terms of you know what what role do the schemas sort of play on our identity and you know is our identity made up of part of the schemas and all this sort of thing and the way that you put it was that it's more that schemas get in the way of expressing our identity more fully so it's not as if that you know they're a part of our identity but like i like that term life trap because you know you, you can get your head around the fact that everyone goes through life and goes through experiences that it's completely understandable that we fall in a bit of a trap of thinking in some ways like it's completely understandable and you know in some ways organic and it doesn't mean that you know we're condoning and it doesn't mean that you know we're trivializing some of the problems that it may present but i think if you look at it even in terms of, you know something that could potentially stand in the way of the expression of our identity like it i think it helps to see the scheme as, as being slightly removed from our, our identity whilst having maybe a bit of interplay there as well there is maybe some relation without uh, I suppose looking at it too rigidly yes and that is one thing that I really like about positive psychology and its emphasis on character strengths because when we look at our personality strengths our character strengths that's more how we are likely to react and what's going to come out from us when we are feeling more secure, more free, more competent, more spontaneous. So if you like, if we're in situations where our core needs are met or we're more free to be more fully ourselves, that's when our strengths might come out of courage or creativity or love of knowledge or persistence. That gets more at the person's identity, I believe, whereas the schemas relate more to the patterns of problems that get in the way of people being able to express themselves more fully, more confidently, more true to their own identity. So, Dad, just to finish up, and, and look, this is actually something it would be good to talk a little bit more about next week in terms of, you know, what can we actually do if we identify some of these patterns within our own thinking and behaviour? 
because uh, you know I think it's worth maybe putting a little more time to than just the end of the episode here, Dad. But I suppose just as a, a way of introduction, maybe for next week's episode as well. What can we do if we identify a particular schema within ourselves? Okay, now one thing that happens, especially in a therapy setting, I'll talk about that mainly because that's often where schema therapy will be practiced. But the thing is the client and the therapist have a strong collaborative relationship. There's a lot of emphasis on that, to be aligned, to then to stand back together or stand aside each other in challenging or attacking the schema. The schema is dysfunctional. It is unhelpful. It's important that the person doesn't identify too strongly with the unrelenting standards or expectation of failure or insufficient self-control or entitlement. It's important that the person doesn't identify too strongly with that and can challenge it. And so that'll need to be challenged at a cognitive level, at an experiential or emotional level, at a behavioural level and through the relationship itself. So in terms of cognitive techniques, that includes looking at the pattern of the schema, how it's impacted on the person's life and look at some of the disadvantages. Can acknowledge how the schema might have fitted for the person's life in the past, like it maybe protected them not to trust other people or to anticipate that things might go wrong or to give in to others' demands or needs to protect themselves when you're in a situation where you were quite powerless and others were powerful over you. You can acknowledge that there was a past time when these schemas might have served a purpose, but looking at how they don't serve such a need now and recognising the underlying thoughts like I don't belong or other people can't be trusted or anything I do will end up in failure. Looking at the evidence for those kind of things at a deep level and then looking to challenge them. Sometimes people would even develop flashcards or some kind of mantras or self-talk to help counter some of the schemas. But it's looking at the deeper kind of beliefs and challenging the deeper beliefs and especially the value or lack of value in having the schema, how it's passed its use-by date, in other words. Then experiential techniques. It's really difficult to challenge schema unless you have the emotions attached to them come up. And therapists will often do this through imagery exercises. It might be imagining being in a conflict situation and having a conversation with someone else. It might be remembering or imagining a situation when the person was a child and how something went and then maybe interacting with one's parent in imagination. So you can have role plays. You can have two chair techniques where the person might be in one chair and imagining their parent being in another chair and maybe expressing how they felt let down in certain kind of ways. So part of it is looking at ways that bring up emotions. So imagery and two chair techniques and role plays can help with that. An important part of it is behavioural pattern breaking. So acting in a different way to the schema. So if someone tends to deal with a failure schema by not having a go, by avoiding situations, fronting up and looking to have a go, approach the situation and maybe not expect to be perfect, but putting in an effort. Or if someone has unrelenting standards, giving themselves a briefer period of time to complete a task three quarters well, when maybe it doesn't have to be done 100% well. So doing different things where it's acting differently from what the schema would dictate. 
And then there's the therapist-client relationship, so looking at how things come up. For example, the client might be perceiving the therapist as being overly critical or rejecting in some way. And that might be an opportunity for the therapist and client to recognise that. Often it will be the therapist recognising that from, for example, the person's way of responding to a missed appointment or a therapist going on a long holiday and the client might react in ways that suggest that there's an abandonment schema operating and then talking directly about what that's like for the client having their therapist go away for four weeks despite they're facing a very challenging situation coming up and the feelings of abandonment that might be triggered by that. So basically in schema therapy, looking at the feelings, the relationship, relating it to childhood experience as well, it's looking to trigger some of these vulnerable feelings that come up because we know, for example, with depression, some people have negative thoughts associated with their depression that are triggered by emotions. And in that situation, in the therapy itself, it needs to bring up those uncomfortable emotions. In the therapy relationship or in imagery or role plays, so the person can notice and be aware of and feel those uncomfortable emotions and talk about and practice different ways of managing with them rather than having a more maybe superficial therapy which has lots of education about how they could think differently and the person might be feeling quite positive for a period of time and encouraged but if in three months time after finishing therapy they have a huge argument with their partner or they get retrenched from their job or some other very challenging situation happens that might trigger these emotions that then can lead people to get into further difficulty. So it's really looking at the areas of vulnerability that have got people into the most trouble for the longest period of time. Well, thanks for chatting with me about all this today, Dad. I suppose just a, a couple of thoughts to, uh, to finish up from me. Like, what really strikes me about talking about all this sort of stuff and, you know, looking at things in this context and, you know, part of my French here, but I suppose you just realise that everyone's got their shit going on. It's sort of, you know, you you almost don't take some of this sort of stuff into account, I don't think, when you, I suppose, just think about kind of people in general. Like, you know, as I said earlier, I think there's an element to which everyone's on a bit of a spectrum with this sort of stuff and, you know, not to trivialise people's legitimate experiences which lead to problems and, and patterns of problems. But at the same time, I, I think, you know, it speaks to the idea that we're all human and we're all complex in a way. And, you know, there's a there's a line actually, Dad, that it reminded me of from a book. And, you know, it's probably my favourite line in any book, actually. And I think it speaks to the idea of how complex people are, I think. And I think, you know, looking at the schemas, it, again, like it gets to that idea of how complex people are. And to, it's from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he talks about in the Gulag Archipelago, he says, the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years and even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And so obviously you're looking at, you know, good and evil, like they're quite, you know, extreme concepts. But, you know, it speaks to the idea of, A, we're all complex. And I think talking about, you know, some of this sort of stuff, I think at times, you know, you, you can reflect on something that you've done and you can sort of think, you know, 
maybe I was a bit defensive there or, you know, I didn't actually cover myself in glory. If I, if I look back now and it's almost as if you've got, you know, an, an extra perspective with hindsight. And to me, I wonder if what that speaks to is that at times we can maybe be influenced by our schemas and then maybe when the intensity of the moment and the emotion has subsided a little bit, it almost allows for our identity to come through. And so, you know, the, the scheme is a sort of one influence, I think, on people that can lead us away from maybe expressing ourselves more fully. But, but yeah, but I, I like that line, Dad, because it speaks to, you know, the complexity of people. And I think that's also what the schemers get at, because uh, to me, that's, you know, it's a fundamental part of psychology that's maybe a little bit less spoken about. Yes, I think it's helpful to acknowledge that common humanity and all of us can be vulnerable in different ways and all of us can have a shadow side in different ways and not look for humans to be like machines, so to speak. But I will also highlight that for many people, when they are experiencing distress in terms of anxiety or depression or burnout or a number of reactions, often people do respond very well to interventions like CBT and positive psychology and a range of interventions that might not be going to quite so much depth in terms of childhood experience and looking at personality patterns as persistently. But it's especially when people have longer term or more repeated or more severe difficulties that we need something extra, like schema therapy or something that looks at those personality patterns. And I would say in a private practice setting, we're talking about something like 20 to 30% of people who seek therapy can do with something that goes into that bit more depth. But sometimes we do see people who are dealing with burnout or a recent challenging situation or a loss where there might not be so much need, if you like, to go into that background pattern and looking for schemas to the same extent. So with schema therapy, often it would unfold over something more like about 24 to 30 sessions would be not uncommon if people are looking for that longer term whereas many people who seek therapy on average it might be more like eight to ten sessions of therapy to address depression or an anxiety problem so it's putting it in perspective but it's really important to acknowledge I think sometimes people have difficulties that relate to more entrenched personality patterns and it takes something stronger and more encompassing to help address that in a long-term meaningful way. Well, I'll put all the resources for today's episode up at psychspills.com.au and we'll make sure that there's a list of the schemas particularly up there. It can be hard to, to grab them on the fly, so we'll put a list of those up there. And, and Dad, I'll look forward to, to getting into the next week's topic, uh, which is a little bit more on, as I said, what we can do if we identify a schema within ourselves. So as I said, Dad, I reckon, I reckon everyone's got you know at least a little bit of it. So hopefully uh, hopefully it's going to have some relevance to everyone. I, you know, I'll put my hand up and I'll say, maybe myself included. Good then, Rowan. Look forward to the next one.